Okay, let's, let's pray. Father, would you please guide us tonight by your Holy Spirit? Would you teach us, Lord, help us to have uh, a good, fruitful evening? I pray that it would be an encouragement to, uh, to the McDonald's hearts, to Steve's heart, to the Poirier's hearts. Um, Lord, please help us to, uh, to focus. Lord, speak through me with power, even as we, as we speak over the computer. And I pray that, that you'd be glorified in everything that we say, in everything that I say, and everything that we do. Lord, help me to, to speak tonight with unction, with unction. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight, because we're doing a different format, guys, I'm going to, I, I don't know about you, but I have a really difficult time watching someone over a screen for a really long period of time. Maybe it's just me being a squirrel or ADHD or <laughs> something like that. So uh, maybe let's, even though I didn't plan to do this, let's make this just slightly more interactive than we have in the past. So if, uh, if we've all been in a situation where we've heard someone speak or preach and thought, you know, uh, I wonder if they're going to bring up this passage. And if, if a passage comes to mind, um, feel free to share and to share some insight. And I think that'll just make things a little bit more engaging and uh, and I don't think that that will take away from the, the spirit of the teaching time. So uh, feel free to, to intervene um, and to add as, as we're going along, okay? So we're, we're going now, we're looking at the second part of our statement on the Holy Spirit. Elias uh, last week showed us um, or taught us about the divine identity, the divine nature of the Holy Spirit, that he is God the Spirit and he uh, taught us that the one, one of the roles or some of the roles of the Holy Spirit are to glorify Christ, to convict the world. We, we know that in Scripture, to convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and the judgment, and then imparting life through regeneration. And this week what we're going to do, we're going to dig just a bit deeper now, and we're going to look at what God the Spirit does upon our conversion. So this is um, maybe for Jesse and Selena, when they catch this online, hopefully this might be helpful for them. But what, what the, the third person of the Trinity does when a person is converted, and then the activity of the Holy Spirit for the remainder of a believer's life. So it's, uh, I, like I do with all of these, I had too much fun, and I have too much information, so I'm just going to have to uh, prune as we go. But uh, we'll read, the, whole, we'll read the, uh, the statement first. So it says, The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of promise, this is the second part, seals, anoints, indwells, and sanctifies believers upon their conversion. And further to that, it further sanctifies, He further sanctifies, leads, illumines, fills, and graciously empowers for godly living and service until the day of redemption. Now, uh, what I've done here for ease is we'll break this study up into two sections. So we'll look firstly at the activity of the Holy Spirit upon conversion, and we're going to uh, do a bit of a word study on, on those words individually. So seals, anoints, indwells, sanctifies. And then uh, secondly, we'll look at the role of the Spirit in the life of a believer from justification to regeneration. All right, so let's look at that first section first. We'll look at this. The Spirit of promise seals, anoints, indwells, and sanctifies believers upon their conversion. 
Now, last week, uh, Elias uh, unpacked a little bit already this, this idea of the spirit of promise. And so, um, the language that we get this from, this idea of the spirit of promise, the Holy Spirit that was promised to the church as part of the new covenant, one of the passages we would look at is Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 13. So Ephesians 1, 13, it says, In Him, that's in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We see the seal of, or the, the spirit of promise. And if you're a fan of church history, that expression, the spirit of promise, we actually get from William Tyndale and uh, the King James Version, the translators, uh, they borrowed that language. And so in the, in, the, uh, in the King James Version or in the Tyndale Version, uh, it reads something like this, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And then last week, Elias told us a little bit about how the coming of the Holy Spirit was in keeping with the ancient promises of God. And so, um, this, although the Holy Spirit, the Lord, uh, would put His Holy Spirit upon people in the Old Testament, uh, and we heard it last week, so I won't go at length, but uh, the Scriptures, whether it is the books of Moses, the history books, the writings, the minor prophets, major prophets, even in the Gospels, we see the promise of this Holy Spirit coming, uh, the Spirit of God coming in a new and a, in a pronounced way, and it's scattered across the text of Scripture. And then finally, in these last days, God has poured out His Holy Spirit upon His believers. And, uh, and I just want to say, what a blessing that is, that our Lord keeps His promises. When we think about uh, the world in which we live, there are men who make promises and choose not to keep them. There are uh, folks who make promises and then forget about them, even with good intentions, and fail to keep them. But unlike man, uh, when God speaks, his word is truth. Uh, I'm mindful of Psalm chapter 12 and verse 6, where it says, The words of the Lord are pure words. I love that. Has a man ever had pure words? Uh, only when he's speaking the Lord's words. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And if we can extend this just a little bit further, the promises of the Lord are pure promises. So all the glory goes to him. God has given his spirit of promise to his people in these last days according to his word. Now at this point, uh, someone might ask, Maybe no one in this group, sometimes I feel like I'm preaching to the choir, but someone might ask, what is the purpose of this outpouring of God's Spirit? What is the, the function of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers, in the lives of the saints? And I think our, our statement, while it doesn't do it, um, doesn't do it exhaustively, it gives us uh, just a little bit of what the Holy Spirit does. And so we're, we're going to look at these words, seals, anoints, indwells, sanctifies. And I'll add that all of this occurs, I'll say this a few times just to drive it home, all of this occurs immediately, completely, instantaneously upon conversion. So there is a progressive element to the, the filling of the Spirit of God, to the to the, uh, the unction, to the anointing of the Spirit of God. However, all of these things uh, are commenced 
at conversion, some of them in completion, but we'll look at this together. So, uh, first we'll look at the word seals. So when God saves a man or a woman, he seals, he places the seal of his Holy Spirit on them. And we see this in a number of texts. Um, I'm going to cherry pick just a few, um, but maybe we can turn, we'll turn together to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And I find it interesting as we're getting there, um, just the connection you see sometimes with this idea of the promises of God and, and the Spirit of God. But 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. They find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. We're going to come back to that. He has anointed us and has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So God has given his spirit as a seal on our hearts, as a guarantee. And it begs the question, a guarantee of what? And I think that Ephesians chapter 1 tells us about that. We've already looked at this a little bit, but... Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, see the promise again, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So here we see that the Spirit of God, God has given us a seal as a seal to guarantee our inheritance. So from the moment of our conversion until the time of our glorification, we are, we are sealed. There is a guarantee. And it might, it's, I find it often is helpful to look at, uh, a little, dig a little bit more into the, the meaning of these words in a historical context to appreciate it. So um, what we're going to do is we'll, we'll look at some of the, the history behind this. So in the Bible, um, says that God has set his seal on us. He's referring to an, an ancient practice. And I'm looking at you, McDonald children. Maybe you guys have experienced something like this before uh, or seen something like this before, maybe in a movie or in a book when someone has a letter. Maybe it's a royal letter um, and they will take a drop of wax or some soft wax and stamp it with a stamp or maybe seal it with a signet ring. Well, that's what God has in mind there is to seal or to stamp uh, wax, and so that might be on a on decree. Maybe in, in some movies you see it to seal an envelope. Uh, and even recently, when we were thinking about the ascension of Christ, the Roman seal that was placed on the tomb of our Lord, that was essentially one of these seals. And um, it, it might seem like a, a bit of a, a foreign idea, but I was thinking back to a time when I worked at a mechanic shop uh, back when I was 19. Between high school and college, I had a job. Nicole's dad actually offered me the job, and he said, um, how would you like to be a gopher for the summer? <laughs> and I thought, what does a gopher do? Um, uh, it didn't, didn't sound very exciting. And then he said, uh, and I'll pay you $10 an hour. And at that time, $10 an hour was like double what I was making anywhere else. <laughs> so I remember saying to Nicole, for $10 an hour, 
I will do anything. <laughs> There's nothing I wouldn't do for $10 an hour. So in any case, uh, I worked uh, as a gopher for the summer. And uh, one of the things that I did, it was a trucking company that hauled cement dust, or I guess it would be, yeah, cement dust. And, uh, and this shop, because they were fixing these trucks, would just be covered in cement dust. And so my job pretty much all day was to sweep cement dust, uh, which, which is yeah, <laughs> maybe why I was getting paid $10 an hour. But I remember I used to sweep the tool room and I would look at all these mechanics toolboxes. And you'd look at these mechanics toolboxes and you'd think, I remember thinking to myself, that box probably has $10,000 worth of tools and that box and that box and that box. And counting the tools, I was thinking there's maybe $100,000 worth of tools or more just in this room. It's not locked. There's no fancy security systems. Uh, and how do you think those mechanics secured their tools? They would, they would put a stamp or, or etch their initials or their name onto the tools. And what they were saying when they did that is, this belongs to me. This is my toolbox. This is how I make my living. And if you touch my tools, you mess with me. And I'm going to find you because my name is on my tools. And in many ways, this is what the Lord does when he puts his seal on us. There's really four things that the Lord does when he puts his seal on us. It's a, it communicates his authorship, that, that he has made us, that he has made us anew. It communicates his ownership, that we are his, we belong to him. It, it communicates authenticity, that we are uh, authentically his. And, that it, uh, and it communicates protection. It's, it's, and so if someone put their seal, just like the tomb of Christ, it communicated all of those things. And so when God puts his spirit on a person, uh, I'm looking at you, Naphtali, there <laughs> in your living room. Uh, he, when God puts his seal on you, he says, I have made Naphtali a new person. She has been created in Christ Jesus for good works before, which I have prepared beforehand that she should walk in them. So God has made you anew and he has put his seal on you. I have made Naphtali anew. When God puts his seal on a person, he might say, I own Steve. I have bought him with the blood of my own dear son. He has been bought with a price. He belongs to me. He is to glorify God in his body. When God places a seal on a person, he communicates that anyone who has the Spirit is a genuine Christian. And uh, the scripture even teaches this. Romans 8.16 tells us, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then, when God places a seal on the saints, he effectively says, This person is mine. I made them, I own them, they bear my seal of authenticity and I will protect them and I will preserve them with authority greater than any human government, with authority greater than the Romans when they sealed our Lord's tomb. And to, to break that seal was a capital offense. In 1 John, we're told that he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. And so the Lord will protect his people and he's given his seal, we're told, as a guarantee. And the word that Paul uh, uses for guarantee here is the word arabon, which means a down payment or a pledge. And so 
Uh, just like when we buy a house and we commit to that property until we take possession of it, when the Lord puts this pledge down, this, uh, this divine down payment, He is in essence saying, I am committed to saving this individual. I'm committing to protecting this individual until I take possession of him. We see that confirmed in Romans 8, verse 11. It says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The next word that we see is this, the word anoints. And so we've already looked at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where it says that uh, we, God has established us in Christ and anointed us with the Holy Spirit. Um, but let's think about this word anoint. I don't know if, if you guys are familiar with the word anoint. It's not something that we use that often anymore. But it's a loaded term and it's full of wonderful meaning. So we'll look at a couple of things here. So to anoint a person would be to, to smear or to pour oil on them or to pour oil on something and it's done for this purpose primarily to to signify holiness to signify separation unto God and so in the scriptures we we see this again and again we see that it's used to bestow divine blessing and to equip an individual for service one of the very first places that we see this practice even though the word anoint isn't used is in Genesis 28 so if you guys are familiar with the story of Jacob, or the otherwise known as Israel, you'll, re you'll remember a time when he was traveling through the land of Canaan, and he ended up spending the night there, and I don't know about you guys, I'm thinking about the kids, do you guys ever go to bed and rest your head on a rock for comfort? Do you ever use a stone as a pillow? It doesn't seem like a comfortable thing to me, but Jacob used a stone as a pillow that particular night and fell asleep and, uh, and maybe it was part of the Lord's providence. I wouldn't sleep very deep if I had a stone pillow but the, Jacob had a dream and he had a dream about a ladder that reached to heaven and there were angels of God ascending and descending the ladder and above the ladder was God. And the Lord promised Jacob, he promised him that he would give him that land that he was sleeping on and that he would fill that land with his descendants. And so in the morning, early in the morning when Jacob woke up, he took his stones, he stacked them, uh, and then poured oil on that pillar of stones. And that essentially was him anointing that pillar. And it, it was a place that was to be holy, that was to be separated unto God. It was Bethel, the house of God. The next place we see that is in Exodus 28 and 29. When we read about the, the first anointing of a person. And in, in those chapters we read how the priests, how Aaron and his sons were to be anointed and consecrated for service as priests in the tabernacle. And when these priests were anointed with the special oil that no one else was allowed to make, they were set apart as unto God commissioned for service. Later we read about kings who were anointed at their coronation. My mind goes to King Saul, if you remember that story. King Saul was anointed with oil, we're told. And then shortly thereafter, in 1 Samuel, it says that God gave him another heart. It was 
at that anointing or shortly after that anointing that, that God, in essence, uh, made Saul anew, not in the New Testament sense, but in uh, an Old Testament sense. And then later it says that the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied. And all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets. The people said to one another, and the people said with one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And then we see that the prophet Elisha was anointed to take the, pra- uh, take the place of Elijah. We see this in 1 Kings 19. And he too received power to affect his ministry. And then finally, the ultimate anointed one is uh, none other than Jesus Christ. The name Christ, the Greek word Christ, Christos, translated means anointed one. We see in passages like Luke 4, it says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the Lord of the year's favor. And so Christ came as the ultimate prophet, priest, king, the ultimate anointed prophet, priest, and king. And he is the substance to which all these shadows point, as we've said so many times already. And he was set apart as God. He set himself apart as God unto himself. The scriptures tell that he consecrated himself to do the will of God. And when he ascended into heaven, he essentially bestowed his mantle, this anointing upon his body, the church, to carry out ministry in his place. And we see this, uh, this be, these verses begin to make sense when we understand this aright, 1 Peter 2.9, where we get part of our uh, mission statement from, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We see that, uh, that divine kingdom or king and priests that we would, we would also see in Revelation 5. And all of this comes by the anointing of God's Spirit. Acts 1 verse 8. And this should embolden us as we think about uh, carrying out our ministries to the Lord. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He empowers us for ministry, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. First John 2.20 But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. Later in verse 27 But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it is taught, you abide in Him. So the Spirit of the Lord convicts, He regenerates, He anoints, and He consecrates for faithful service unto God. Next we'll look at indwelling. And it's too bad, I, I really wish that, that I could do all of these terms justice. So if you guys have anything you want to add, please do. I remember, and I don't know if anyone has heard this criticism, but I remember John MacArthur after he had the Shepherds Conference, or it was around that time, uh, there was uh, a charismatic group that offered a little bit of commentary 
on John MacArthur. And one of the things that they said was, it is, it's kind of a backhanded comp, uh, compliment. They said, it's evident that God has used John MacArthur in an important way, that his Christian ministry has been uh, very valuable. But they said, just imagine how powerfully, how, sorry, how powerfully he would be used of God if he had the Holy Spirit, uh, implying that a person can be a Christian, that they can even be effective, and yet not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. Another time I remember reading a book um, by a Christian author, and I looked at the, the back of the book, and they had their biography on the back cover, and uh, it said something to, to the effect of this, that Bob was saved and came to Christ in 1978, but it was not until 1982 when he received the Holy Spirit that he was truly transformed. And so the question is, can a person believe in Christ? Can they repent of their sins? Can they be saved? Can they live a faithful Christian life and not have the Holy Spirit? I think we know already from what I've said here that the answer to that is no. But we'll let, we'll let the Apostle Paul answer this as well. He says in Romans 8 verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you do not have the Spirit, you are not a Christian. If you do have the Spirit, you are a Christian. And, and, and this is amazing, wonderfully, miraculously, almost unbelievably, when an, a man or a woman, an individual, is born again by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit doesn't simply affect the change in that person's heart and then move on. No, He enters into that individual's heart, into that uh, individual believer. And what a fearful and glorious thought that is that every person, I was going to say every person in this room, but every person uh, on this screen who is in Christ has the Spirit of God dwelling within them. And that, that begins when I, when I was thinking about that this week, it, it really starts to um, drive home the importance of, of not grieving the Spirit whom God has given us. Now, the Lord taught this, and we see it in the Gospel of John, in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. forever. Who is it? Verse 17, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. He says, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So that, that was the Lord, when he left, when he ascended into heaven, he would give the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit wouldn't uh, merely be upon us, but in us. In Acts 2.2, uh, 2, we, see, we see this at Pentecost, how uh, it says in verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Galatians 4.6, I'm going to speed through this a bit. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, the Spirit has been sent into our hearts. What a blessing. He has not left us as orphans, but he is on his throne. He is sovereign and active in the world, and he is in, he's reigning in the hearts of his people, every single one of his people. And this is a blessing that I'm going to challenge you. I think that most of us take for granted that the Holy Spirit has been given to us and has been put in us. 
And uh, I'm mindful of something that Moses said, Numbers 11. You hear at, at one point, Moses said, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. And not only do we have the Spirit on us, but we have the Spirit in us. Next, we see that the Spirit sanctifies. He sanctifies believers. Now, uh, right away, someone might think, because, uh, because I'm saying that the Spirit sanctifies believers, does that mean when someone is saved, that they immediately, that not only are they justified, but immediately they are sanctified, that they, that they turn directions, that they are perfect, that they achieve what, uh, what has been called complete sanctification, what uh, the Wesley brothers, more specifically John Wesley, taught this idea of uh, complete sanctification, sinless perfectionism. Uh, that's not what I'm teaching, but we'll, we'll look at that a little bit. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9 says, Or do you not know that the un- unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor, adult- nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified. That's past tense. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And so uh, the Spirit upon conversion sanctifies believers. That doesn't mean that it's immediate, complete sanctification. But, but what it does mean is that when we're washed with the waters of regeneration, when we're renewed by the Holy Spirit, uh, the individual's heart and mind is sanctified, it is consecrated unto God, it is purified for His purposes. Uh, probably the best word is, is transformed by the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur writes this, he says, Sanctified, this results in new behavior which a transformed life always produces. Sin's total dominion is broken and replaced by a new pattern of obedience and holiness. Holiness, Though not perfect, this is a new direction. Romans 6, we see this in verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been, having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Paul speaks of this transformation a little bit later too. In verse 20, he says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were, in fr- you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of, of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. And so the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit at conversion breaks the bonds of sin and frees us both to desire and to do the will of God, albeit imperfectly. We shouldn't expect perfect repentance. We should not expect perfect sanctification at conversion, but we should expect a transformation, a change of direction, new desires, new affections. And at conversion, the Spirit initiates a process that 
that changes the complete trajectory of our lives. The things that the sin that we once loved, to use Paul's words, we're now ashamed of. The good that we once despised, despised, we now desire. Holiness, righteousness, Christ-likeness, something that no unbeliever, when we were unbelievers, none of us had that desire to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, at our conversion, when the Holy Spirit has been given to us, we hunger and thirst for righteousness, as the Lord taught in the Sermon on the Mount. I'll illustrate this just with a a personal experience. I remember, uh, as an unbeliever, going to church with Nicole, and uh, they were singing praise and worship songs. And I looked around and I thought, you know, I think religion has a, a purpose to serve, a purpose to serve even in my life. I tend to feel better on Monday after I've been to church on Sunday. Uh, but I am not going to get brainwashed like the rest of these people. I'm not going to, I, I even remember hanging out with a Christian friend and, uh, and bless, bless my mom. She, uh, she was, uh, she was looking out for me the, the best way that she knew how, so I don't want to dishonor her in this illustration. But she said, whatever you do, don't let them convert you. And I, I kind of smugly laughed and said, oh, mom, I'm not, not going to get converted. Don't worry. And, uh, and then what happened uh, when the Lord saved me a few years later? Uh, I remember praying to the Lord, uh, probably with language from Titus 3, like, the washing of regeneration. Lord, wash my brain more. Wash my brain more. I, I offer myself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. There was uh, any sacrifice that I could make was not enough uh, in, in the service of God. And that's not for my glory, but that's for the, the glory of God and the glory of the Spirit. It was an instantaneous shift And everything that I had lived for up to that point lost its luster. And God, God became everything. And all of this, all that I've described happens at once at the time of conversion. Praise the Lord for that. He seals, he anoints, he indwells, he sanctifies every single believer. It's not just for a special few. It's not for rock stars, the rock stars of Christendom but is a reality for every man, woman, and child in Christ. All of these things. It sounds so good, it's hard to believe it could get better, but it it does. And so we'll look at the second part of our statement. It reads this, The Spirit further sanctifies. He leads, illumines, fills, and graciously empowers for godly living and service until the day of redemption. So I've already provided a pretty thorough definition of some of these terms. So we're going to pick up the pace a little bit and uh, we'll leave some room for personal study perhaps. But we'll look at this. He further sanctifies. So while the process of sanctification begins at conversion, it's not yet complete. I've already said that. And, And we see this in passages like Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, I love this passage, for by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so uh, what this shows is that we can be justified. We can be perfected for all time upon our conversion to Christ. uh, And yet there is still room for sanctification. There's still sanctification needed. And you'll notice in this passage that um, 
that we are not the primary actor in this sanctification. The author of Hebrews doesn't say um, that uh, we are sanctifying, but that we are being sanctified. We are just like if someone says, uh, oh, where's the car? Oh, it's, it's being washed. Uh, the car is having something performed on it. Uh, that doesn't mean that we're passive in the process, but we are not the primary actor. Peter gives us a bit more insight in 1 Peter 1, chapter, or 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, he's writing to this dispersed church in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. For what purpose? For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. It is the Spirit of God that sanctifies for obedience and for obedience to whom? For obedience to Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate goal of our sanctification is conformity to Christ. It is obedience. It is holiness. It is to be pure as He is pure. And as I've said, while the Holy Spirit is the active player in this, we are not passive. I'll show, show a couple of verses that, or at least one that, that, that lends itself to this. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, another good one. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so, praise God, He sanctifies us at our conversion. He continues to sanctify us through our Christian life. And how do we participate? We behold the glory of the Lord. We behold Him in prayer. We behold Him in His Word. We hunger and thirst for righteousness and act according to that desire, to that, uh, that thirst, that hunger. We seek the Lord in obedience to Him. We say, uh, what does the Word say and how can I obey it? So that's how we participate. That's a quick summary, but how we participate in sanctification with the Spirit. It says that He leads us. He leads us in, in a very practical way with, with decisions uh, for life and family and work and ministry. That is why we seek the Lord in prayer and ask for wisdom because we, uh, we trust that when we do, the Spirit of God gives us that wisdom. Uh, we see a, a living example of this in Acts 16.6. It says, And they went, this is uh, Paul on his missionary journey, through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And so we don't know what that forbidden really looks like, but that the Lord led Paul in his ministry and in some cases gave specific guidance about where to go and where not to go. And this involves our active participation. Again, we're not passengers in the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, it is not like a bus where you get in and the bus drives and you just sit there and you can close your eyes and fall asleep. We must remain awake and open to the Spirit's leading. And so we see verses like Romans 8, 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Those are those who, who essentially follow in the Spirit's footsteps. Galatians 5, 16-25, But I say, walk by the Spirit. This is an exhortation. 
which means that there are some who choose not to or fail to walk by the Spirit. But Galatians says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is tied in really closely with our sanctification. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those who are opposed, sorry, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There we see the new affections. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And he gives a long list of vices. But then he says in verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is this, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so we can be led by the Spirit, we can walk in step with the Spirit, or we cannot. And how do we do this? Well, we, we look at what the Word of the Lord says, and we, we seek the Lord. We walk in communion with Him. We abide in Him. We seek His direction. As a church, we should, we should be people who are continuously asking, Lord, uh, where do I go from here? Lord, what next? Lord, where would you have me to be? And to, to be in submission to God, to be in submission to His desire, to His will, to His word. You see that He illumines. In 1 Corinthians 2.11, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It is the Spirit of God that helps us, that illuminates our minds, that illuminates his word to help us understand. I remember as a new believer, I remember as a new believer praying in a prayer meeting, Oh Lord, give me revelation. Give me revelation. And at the time, I didn't really know what that meant but something felt off about it. And now I've learned that the Lord has already given his revelation in his word. We've talked about this. He's revealed himself generally. He's revealed himself specially, specifically. And what I need is illumination. Oh Lord, open my, under, my mind to understand this passage. That's why we pray before we preach. Lord, help me to preach this effectively. Help my hearers to hear it, to understand it, and to do it. It's the Spirit of God. We must be dependent on the Spirit of God to illumine. <clears throat> We're almost done here. In uh, Ephesians 5.18, we see that he fills. It says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But to the contrary, he says, Be filled with the Spirit. In Acts 6.5, when the seven were chosen to serve tables, it describes Stephen. He was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And then it lists the other men. I trust that those other men were godly men, spirit-filled spirit men. But there was something about Stephen that made it notable that he was perhaps more filled, that this filling was more pronounced, more noticeable, uh, more noteworthy 
in terms of including it in, in text, in the text. And how is this? Well, in Luke 11, we remember the Lord telling a parable and he said, uh, which of you has a friend, uh, who has a friend, will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I, ta- I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Instead of a fish, give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to, the, to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And so, we should be seeking to be filled more with the Spirit. We've already established that every Christian has the Spirit indwelling, but that infilling can be to various degrees. And we should uh, pray and seek to be filled to overflowing, filled to the greatest degree that is humanly possible. Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Lord, give me your Holy Spirit. Sanctify me. Make me uh, a fitting vessel for honorable use to be filled with your Spirit. And last, lastly, he empowers for godly living and service. We've already looked at that at some, le- some length with the anointing of God, but we see this practically worked out in the New Testament. For instance, in Second Corinthians, Second Timothy, chapter one, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Verse fourteen. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul is encouraging Timothy by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit's work in you, by his empowering, by his equipping, carry out your ministry. And then we see that he gives gifts, gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We're not going to go through it here, but Romans 12, verses 3 to 8, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 to 11, Ephesians 4, verses 9 to 6, the Lord has bestowed gifts upon his church for the building up of his body to the to mature manhood to the fullness of the stature of Christ we're told in Ephesians 4 and so the Lord has empowered us all to carry out the ministries that he has given us to one another and to the world around us and ultimately for his glory so in summary at our conversion I better have it in front of me if I'm going to summarize it he seals he anoints He indwells, he sanctifies at conversion. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. And if if you're a believer and you're questioning your salvation, I would say examine yourself. Do you see that the Lord has sealed you, that he has anointed you, that he's given you new desires through sanctification? Does 
your spirit bear witness with his that, that he is in you. And then I would say, look for the fruit of that sanctification in the spirit. What is, what is your relationship with God like? What is your relationship with sin like? What is your relationship with righteousness like? Do you, do you secretly love sin and do the righteous deeds out of a sense of duty? Or do you desire to live a righteous life and to serve God? Let me ask you, how is, how is your relationship with the Holy Spirit? He is a, a member of the Trinity that we enter into relationship with through Christ. Have you, have you experienced his leading? Do you seek out his leading? Do you seek out his illumination? Do you pray and ask for him to fill you? Lord, fill me with your spirit. Does this describe your life in the Holy Spirit? I'll, I'll leave it with this, with this sentence. May we be a people. May, be, may we be a, a church plant uh, that is filled with the Spirit of God for the glory of God. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would illuminate this word in, in my heart, in our hearts, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit. Lord, that we would love you and serve you. That we would bear the fruit of your Spirit. That we would have one ambition, one desire in all the world. And that would be to, to please you, to obey you, to glorify you, and to live with you for all of eternity. So, Lord, help us to understand this. Help us to apply this. And Father, um, everything that I have said uh, during this time that may have been unhelpful or um, a hindrance in any way, Lord, I pray that you would undo that and Lord, that you continue to teach us by your Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.